Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Have a seat. Good morning, and it's good to be back as we uh, continue through our series in the book of Ephesians. If you're joining us for the first time, either online or here in the auditorium, we are, we are thankful. We are blessed by your presence. May uh, we lead you well as we worship through song and through his word this morning. Um, we are continuing Ephesians uh, into chapter 3. So if you have a Bible and you want to join me in Ephesians chapter 3, we are wrapping up chapter 3 today. A special day, as you just saw uh, this morning earlier, uh, our Costa Rica team, such a special time uh, to be prayed over and prayed for. I invite you just to continue to pray for the team as we travel next week and for all that God has for us, that we would be just surrendered and submissive and that God would lead and be glorified through all of that. I'm sure there will be some amazing God-filled stories once we come back and uh, be able to share with everyone uh, the glorious work that God allows us to be a part of. All right, so chapter 3, we are in uh, the last part, again, of chapter 3, 14 through 21. Last week, real quick, uh, we opened chapter 3. Paul uh, starts to pray. He pauses, and he goes into more of a focused uh, discussion or talk, pinning the words of that incredible, majestic work of God that brings salvation to all people, uh, Jew and Gentile, and his personal role in making that known, that eternal, life-changing truth that Paul is so privileged to be a part, that God would choose him to be a part of making that known. And we move from Paul's exposition, really, in the first part of chapter 3, into Paul's intercession. So, so he's going to take what he's kind of given us, actually, in 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, and first part of chapter 3, and now he's going to move into a time of prayer. This intercession is that God's wonderful plan that he's been describing, he's been explaining now, uh, even more so, is completely fulfilled in our uh, experience of life and the listeners and the readers that he uh, would write to. And so this passage is one of my personal favorites in the book of Ephesians, really in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. Um, I have prayed this prayer uh, that Paul has here over our church on multiple occasions, many times, and it continues to be a part of even our expansion efforts in our For the Kingdom campaign to see uh, this this message that God's will be done first and foremost on his property, in his church, on his campus, but, but through God's will being done that all people, all people come can come to know the encompassing love of Jesus Christ and that we would together praise him throughout the generations to come. And so uh, I, I love this text. And so we'll spend uh, quite a bit of time here this morning uh, working through it. It's one of the most beautiful, probably quote, often quoted prayers in scripture, uh, especially as it references the holistic love of Jesus Christ, which we'll get to. This prayer has been taught. It's been uh, exposited. There's been books written about it. There's been devotions written about it. Um, it's recited continuously. And, and the reason is it's, it's for us. It's for the church. It's about us. And, and, and so as we get into this, we see this is Paul's second prayer. 
Well, his first prayer came in chapter 1, really focusing on enlightenment, our knowledge of what God has done and what God is doing. And this prayer today is really about our enablement. But that enablement doesn't come by just the outside outworking that's seen or tangible to others, but really it begins, as Paul talks about, the inner man. He's desiring that we take hold of these vast riches that we have now as God's adopted son and daughter, all of us, Gentile and Jew that there is no dividing line. So, uh, as I mentioned, it talks about the inner man. These, this, 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 the point is, is that the material needs that we have, this is not about, this prayer is not about material needs or the outer life. This prayer is about, um, and not that those prayers are wrong, this prayer is about our spiritual life. And, and we say this a lot here, if you're new with us, we talk about God doing a work in us, that he might do a work through us, that God has to first begin a work in us and, and continue doing that work, and then that work will come through us as we interact with the world around us. And so Paul is really zeroing in on that, that work of God within us, that, that God would continue, and, and you'll see as we get into this prayer, what God is going to do and what brings to us and what he's done for us. And so let me set up this, this text with just a simple question. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you lacked confidence, where you were discouraged, you lacked confidence, you were full of anxiety, or maybe uh, you had some unrest, some uncertainty that was going on, or, or maybe you have experienced from time to time you wake up and you think, how did I get here? You have that moment where you're like, how did I get here? How, how did I drift? How did I move away from center? How did I get away from center? How did this gap actually happen and then get this wide in my life? How did it get this wide and how do I get so far away? One writer framed it like this. He says, in Christ, you're full of resources. You're very rich, but you're living as though you are in poverty. You're living on empty he says, it's one thing to be told Jesus loves you, but it's another thing to experience Jesus' love. It's another thing for that to change your life. He says, we could say it's one thing to be an adopted child of God, but it's another thing to not live like an orphan. He said, or we could say it's one thing to know the truth and, and, and the beauty of Christ and the glory of Christ and the character of Christ and the grip of Christ and the smile of Christ, but it's another thing altogether to experience it for those truths to plant deep down into our hearts. And now you wonder, well, how do I grab that richness that God brings? How, how do those riches come to me? How do I grab onto those? Maybe, you know, maybe I need to re-grab those, or maybe I need to refresh that in my heart, in my life. How do I rest on the wealth of what God has brought to me and what he has done and have that fullness that is mine so I wouldn't be empty or living like I'm on empty? This prayer we're about to go through, we'll see Paul kind of addressing that, and it's, gonna, it's been called kind of a stepping stone prayer that each request goes on top of the next request, leads to the next one and the next one until we arrive at the end at verses 20 and 21. And, and what Paul prays for is for us, right? This is available to us, what, what we just talked about, that you don't have to live as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you don't have to live on empty that you have a fullness that is available, that is to be there, that we would be rooted and grounded in that fullness, rooted and grounded in Jesus' love for us, that he is at work in us, that I am his and he is mine, that I am safe in his hands. All right, and so we're going to get into this. We're going to read a little bit and talk a little bit. So starting in verse 14, Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Let's pause right there for a second. 
Here we see Paul comparing, as we compare this, we see Paul coming back and returning back to the prayer that he started in verse 1. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I, Paul. And then he, he went into that exposition of what, what God is doing and what God has revealed to him and what God is going to do for the world. Now he's returning back to this prayer. And, and it leads us to the question, though, because he says, for this reason. And we go, well, what is the reason? Why? And, and, and as he says that, we recognize that Paul is, is bowing his knees, which, which isn't customary. It's not a customary practice for Jewish people to kneel in prayer. In fact, if they were kneeling in prayer, and you can see this a few times throughout Scripture, if they were kneeling, it is an extraordinary moment. And we know one of those extraordinary moments was Jesus in the garden. He knelt. There is something powerful here as Paul begins his prayer. And, and, and so we ask the question, well, what, what is the reason that you would be kneeling? It was so extraordinary of a moment. And to summarize kind of what's been happening in chapter 3 and in chapters 1 and 2 as he's been, been sharing with us is really the reconciling work of Jesus Christ to all people, to all people. And and not only that, that Paul has special knowledge of that that God's given to him so that he would have a special responsibility and privilege of telling it to the multitudes. And no doubt that is the reason in summary form why Paul in this extraordinary moment is kneeling and praying. He realizes that God has done something that he never imagined happening. Now remember that when we get to the last part of this prayer. God has not brought the nations to Jerusalem. God has brought the nations to Jesus Christ. And he's not brought the Gentiles to obey the ceremonial code. He's brought the Gentiles to Christ. By faith, on the same basis, he has brought believing Jews into Messiah. So that there would be no two types of believer. There would be no dividing line, middle wall partition between us, but there is one kind of believer in this world, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, all are one in Jesus Christ. And Paul is overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed at this glorious news. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. There's a lesson here, right, about our, about prayer, our prayer motives, and its substance. Certainly what we pray for is indicative of what really matters to most of us. Now Paul is saying, I am praying because of this knowledge. I am praying because of this encounter, the reality of what God has done for us and how he has always answered and provided all we need. That's why I'm praying. We come to God asking for help and wisdom and aid and blessing in our need, having already, here, and here's where, where we're answering that question about being empty, having already received an unfathomable generosity from God. It's so important for us to remember that, that when you and I kneel in prayer, we are not kneeling in prayer and starting that prayer from a place of emptiness, from a place of needing anything, because God is giving us everything, that we would have a real genuine sense in that moment of need and prayer as we come that we've already been given, right? That, because it's true, it's right, and Paul is pressing in on that. We should pray out of, a, out of a sense our need, but we should not forget that we already have received a generosity that no person or thing could ever bring to us. We come asking for blessing, having already received a blessing. We do not come asking for blessing out of poverty, never having received anything from God. That is a foundation for us in prayer. 
And you notice in verse 15, this prayer, as he ends 14, he says, kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is about identity, but is it about one family, right? This prayer is addressed to the Father that's brought to us through the Son by the Spirit. It's familial, reinforcing the the Trinity, reinforcing the familial aspect of Father, Son, and Spirit, reinforcing the reality of one family that God is creating by the Spirit through the finished work of the Son. We are a whole family of believers, all of us. Those in Christ Jesus are part of the family, and we are in the family together, even those with with God in heaven. That's what he says, right? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, right? So we're a whole family of believers. The church active here on earth in the moment right here and now, and the church triumphant in heaven, those who have gone on before us. Even though we're separated by death, we're still one big godly family in eternity, and that is comforting, that is encouraging, that brings strength and comfort and hope when we're in the midst of of the darkness, when we're in the midst of death around us in those moments as we know in Christ that we are one family. We might be separated right now, but in eternity, we'll be together. And it is about our identity, one in God, one together, as Jesus prayed that we would be one. Let's keep going, verses 16 and 17. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Let's pause. Before Paul even gets the appeal out of his mouth in this prayer, before he even gets to that point where he asks God for something, he wants us to understand that he's asking God to answer this prayer out of the measureless generosity. Not out of Paul's measureless generosity, but out of God's measureless generosity. His limitless resources, his gloriously abundant riches. Paul wants it fixed in our minds that God's answer to these prayers are not a question of his ability. God is able. How often have we prayed and and had a moment of doubt if God was actually able to answer? And And Paul's saying right here and showing right here that he is able This is not a question of his ability. God is able to do far and above all that we can ask or think. It is a matter of his will. And so as we come together and see these two verses, we see Paul pressing in of our communion with Christ, with our union with Christ. His desire for us as believers was that we would be strengthened, fortified, invigorated, as one writer put it, as we know the strength of the Spirit's power within us. That's what he said, according to the riches of his glory, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit. Not ours, not our own strength, but his power through his spirit within us that we would grab hold of that even tighter by faith, right? The Apostle Paul, the Christ, to, the, to the Apostle Paul, the Christian life is, is, is a matter of dependence upon divinely supplied strength. Not divinely inspired strength, but supplied strength. And so he prays that the Spirit would strengthen us with power for living the Christian life. It's not easy to follow after Christ. Christ said it wasn't going to be easy. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. 
Don't lose heart, right? Paul said that last week at the end of our text. Don't lose heart. I am with you to the end of the age. Paul knows that we need a divinely supplied strength. We need something greater than ourselves to fill us that we might live out the life that God's called us to. That there, There's never a moment in the Christian life as a disciple and a follower of Jesus where we're not dependent upon God. There's never a moment. And the, and the moment that, that we get there and we think we don't need God, we're in trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. There's never a moment. We need His strength. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and comes to us as the advocate, the helper, as Jesus teaches us. He doesn't just come to us and then go away and say, you know, keep doing your best. No, day by day, the Spirit is strengthening and working within us that we might live out the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul is emphasizing, listen, to do that, we're going to need the divinely supplied strength that God gives. It comes from His Spirit. His message is counterculture, isn't it? It's counterculture to the thing and the saying and the, and the cliche of you just got to just gotta reach down within yourself and there you'll find your answer. There you'll find your, your own strength or your own power, your own ability. Your own, you, know, you, you can overcome this by your own, by your own ability, by, by who you are. You can just reach down and find that power. And Paul's, Paul's like, nope, no, no, you can't. It's not, it's not that you need to look deep within you and find the power to, within you to live out this life. He says, you do need a power within you, yes, but that power within you that you need does not come from within you. It comes from the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit bringing a power that is not in you, into you, that you need. So important. And he speaks to that here, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Amen? How many people struggled to get out of bed today? How many people pulled something, get out into bed today? <laughs> this, outer, this outer shell is wasting away quickly. Our inner self, listen, is being renewed day by day. Remember from earlier, each of us knows why we need this prayer prayed over us, prayed with us, prayed for us. And we consider that we can be full of resources, yet we live on empty. We live on empty. That we can be adopted, we could be in a beloved child of the king, yet we live like orphans. The work of the Holy Spirit brings about the strengthening, the empowering of the life that is to testify, to live full, to testify, to witness to the glorious riches of grace within us. Verse 17 again, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Two parts here, through faith. So often in the Christian life, don't miss this. So often in the Christian life, we want God to give us power so that we can get control of our situation. We want God to give us the power, and then we'll get control. And that's never how the Christian life works. And so when we receive the Spirit's power by faith... We are reminded that we continue to be completely dependent upon God. Again, if we find ourselves in a place where we're not dependent upon God, we're in trouble. The power works in us not so that we can get control of our situation either. God's powerful work within us through his spirit is not so you and I can get control of the situation. A lot of times I have tried to get control and thought I had control and made it worse. I made it worse. 
but so that we can remember the one who is in control of our situation. There's one, capital O, the Lord God of heaven and earth, who's working everything out for the good of his own people and for his glory. And one of the maturing uh, phases of the Christian life, as we grow, as we move from milk to solid food, one of the, one of the maturing phases of that of the Christian life is the realization that I can't make things safe for me. I can't make things safe for me. I can't get control of every aspect of my life. I have to walk in faith. And even if you and I could get control of every aspect of our life within us or or right around us, we can't control others. We can't control others. I can't get control of every aspect of my life because I can't control everything that's happening around me. I have no control. And so, again, the realization is I can't make things safe for me. But, and really, that's what, we, that's what we want. That's what we desire. If we really introspected our own lives, we'd say, this is, this is what I hope for. So what, what is he saying here? He's like, you're going to have to walk in faith. You have to trust God, who, by the way, is in control of everything. So faith recognizes our dependence upon God. It doesn't try and substitute our control for God's control, our power for God's power, to make things safe by our own ability, to make things right in the Christian life that we are living for His glory. The Christian life has lots of things that come into it that are hard, that are dark, that are bleak, that are heartbreaking. And that life can't be made safe by our getting control. And keeping those things from happening because we can't. We don't have that power. You and I are not sovereign. We talk, uh, talk about sometimes we have this Messiah complex. Not trying to save ourselves, but trying to save those around us in our family, in our, in our work, in our cul-de-sac. We think we are the ones who can save them. There's only one who can save. It's not us. We can point others to him. And we're called to point others to us. In fact, that's what Paul's trying to press in. It's like in your faith you are to point others. You'll need this strength. Christian life can be lived with confidence though. It can be lived with joy. It can be, be lived with, with that settled understanding of our future when by our faith we realize that I don't control all this. I can't control all of it. But there is one who does and the one who does loves us. And gave us his son. He controls all. He's sovereign and good. And the other part here in verse 17 is rooted and grounded in love. Uh, pastor and author Dane Ortland writes, The love of Christ is his settled, unflappable heart of affection for sinners and sufferers. When Jesus loves, Jesus is Jesus. He is being true to his own innermost depths. He doesn't have to work himself up to love, but he is a gorged river of love, pent up, ready to gush forth upon the most timid request for it. His love is never calculating or cautious, but his affection for his own never wanes, never sours, and never cools. So Paul is praying that we would understand that, right? Paul is praying not for us to love Christ more, which, by the way, is, is important, and it's what we do as we open his word, is to, and I just prayed that for us. But Paul, in this prayer, is he's praying that we would experience and hold on to the love of Christ for us. 
That we would recognize, we would see, that we would understand, that we would, we would come to an encounter, maybe fresh, maybe for you for the first time, of his love for us. Paul knows that we need a life that is supplied by God's love. It's rooted in God's love. It's grounded upon God's love. Because God has called us to love one another. You just heard Thomas talk about that, that we want to go and we want to love others because, because Jesus said that they will know how, that you are mine, how? Not by serving, not by providing, not by those things, but how we love one another. And Paul goes, I know that's what God is calling us to, is to love one another. And that's hard within our own strength, within our own power, or within a love that we've kind of manufactured. But when we have a, a life that is supplied by God's love, rooted and grounded in God's love, then we're able, we're able, we're able to love as God loves. When our life has been established and anchored in the love of God, He knows, He knows then, because on our own we can't. But He knows only the power of God can root us and ground us in the love of God so that we can love like God. Let me say that again. Only the power of God can root us and ground us in the love of God so that we can love like God. Let's keep going. Verses 18 and 19. Grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 18, Paul moves into the dimensions of God's love. How big, how grand, how majestic, how glorious is Jesus' love? Try to measure it, is what he says, so so that we can try to comprehend it. He starts with the breadth or the width. It's as far far as the east is from the west, right? That, That is how far Christ loves you. I'm going to make this personal. Points that will never meet. It's wide enough for you, for people from every corner of the earth, every, every nation, every language, every tongue, every people. It's wide enough. Wide enough for the worst rebel, the worst prodigal, the worst sinner. Whatever you have done, wherever you have run, as far as you have run, as much of a mess that you've made of your life, whatever road you have traveled, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You can't get away from his love. You can't get outside of it. You can't outrun it. It's wider than you. Whatever the mess, please hear this, whatever the mess, it's wider than your ability to run. That's the breadth of Christ's love. Then he says the length. When did it begin? When did Christ's love begin? It began before the world began. And when does it end? It doesn't end with our constant failure because his love is not like how we love. It doesn't end with our constant failure. But it's long enough to seek us. It's long enough to save us, to hold us, and to keep us. That is the length of his love. We see this demonstrated in the Gospels in Matthew 16. After Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, when Mary was there, the angel appears and he announces Jesus' resurrection. And the angel says to Mary, he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus wants to see them. Those two words, and Peter, shows us the length of God's love, right? Can you imagine how, how Peter, by the, well, by, by, by the way, he's known as the failure at this point. 
because he denied Jesus three times and he claimed he wouldn't do it and he did. Do you imagine how those words and Peter made him feel? Hey, Mary, can you go tell them that I want to see them? He had G- Jesus had Peter on his heart. Why? Because his, his love is long, right? It never ends at failure. He says, will you tell him I want to see Will you tell Peter I want to see him? Christ's commitment, Jesus' commitment to you is long. It doesn't end at our failure. It is his love that never ends. It's a love that will never let us go. Height to the moon and back, right? To the moon and back. That's how much I love you. That's how high I love you. Jesus doesn't just love us so much that he forgave us. He loves us so much that he raised us to the heavenlies. We're in the already but not yet. He loved you and me from the cross to heaven. Jesus said in John 17, he says, as he's praying, he says, Father, I desire that they... He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about his church, his people. He says, I desire, I pray that they will be with me where I am. Notice how high the love of Christ is. That right now you and I are united to Christ by faith into the heavenlies with him. It's the already but not yet. Where is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father? You and I are with him. He is with you. We all have, you have all the privileges of a child of the king and the high of his love, right? You are rich in him. Nothing can be taken from us. That's how high his love is. And then finally, depth. Not only are we with him in the heavenlies, but Jesus sees us all the way to the bottom. And for a lot of us, that's our story. It's in the bottom where we saw Jesus. It wasn't in the plateau or the mediocre of average. It was in the bottom. Jesus, his love will go far into the pit where you find yourself. In fact, it won't just go far into it for you. It will go past you. There is no depth in the pit that his love can't reach. In all of our darkest, deepest, and most desperate moments, the the moments where you and I wonder, will I ever see light? Will the light ever shine again? That's where Jesus' love reaches us there. It goes even down to the depths of the grave. And so many things that we're prone to give our hearts to throughout our life. We're we're prone to give our hearts to that promise to take us to incredible heights. Money, success, fame, praise. So many things on that list. Let me ask a question. How low have those things gone for you? Have they gone into the pit? Were they in the darkness? How low... We give our hearts to those things. How low have they gone? Because Jesus came from the height of heaven, but he sunk low. He sunk lower and lower and lower until his life culminated on a cross and into a grave. And he experienced the very depth. His love is deep. Pastor and author John Stott in his commentary says this about verse 18. He says, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all humanity. That's us. He says it's long enough to last for eternity. It is deep enough to reach even the most degraded man or woman, and it is high enough to exalt him or her, even him or her, to heaven. 
And from there we get verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Surpasses knowledge seems like a fitting phrase at this point, right? There are dimensions, Paul says, but they cannot be measured. Good luck. It surpasses knowledge. And he talks about this in a parallel way, the unsearchable riches of Christ in verse 8 in chapter 3. And so we are so rich in Christ that our riches cannot even be calculated with the most sophisticated math or computers. It surpasses all knowledge. And then the more you and I try to process it or put it to, into words or try to, try to bottle it up, we, we can't. It surpasses knowledge, right? Which then leads us to the be filled with the fullness of God, which seems impossible. I can be filled with the fullness of God. We can't hold all that. But understand, and I'll try to paraphrase an illustration that I read. We live at the coast. So imagine you're standing over on the beach. And you have a little cup in your hand as you're standing there. And you're looking out at this vast ocean. And you bend down and you put that cup down into the water. And the waves just fill it immediately, like almost instantaneous. And you, and you pull the cup back up and you're filled with the fullness of the ocean. But, but you're not because you can never put the fullness of the ocean into that cup, which is who Jesus is. He's infinite. You and I are finite. He can hold the fullness of deity. And Paul talks about that in Colossians 1 and 2. And when we dip our tiny vessels of life into him, he quickly fills us up. But we'll never exhaust his fullness only to expand ours over and over and over for eternity. Filled with the fullness of God. As we understand that, we recognize Positionally, the Christian is complete in Jesus, but practically we get to enjoy his grace. Now, only though the grace that we seize by faith. Remember, we are rich even when we feel poor. Let's finish verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So if you were to look at verses 14 to 16, you see God is the father of the whole family. He possesses infinite riches in glory. And here in these last two verses, he works those into us powerfully within us. This God is a God that can answer prayer, is what Paul is trying to press in. It's a God that can answer prayer. He's, he's able to answer prayer. The God to whom Paul makes this request has a capacity that exceeds the people's capacity, exceeds your capacity, exceeds my capacity, uh, for, by uh, our capacity of asking or even imagining. It exceeds it. Like we can't even imagine all that God could do. Notice that he doesn't say that God is simply able to do all that we ask. He doesn't just say that God is, uh, is able to do all that we ask or think or, or imagine. He doesn't even pray that God is able to do abundantly more all that we ask or imagine, right? Notice what he says again. He says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think or imagine. So he's able to do abundantly, abundantly. And if you could just keep writing that word over and over and over, or, or super abundantly all we ask or think. Paul tried to bring all the words together to try to put them in a, in a sequence to try to really reinforce the point that, that God is able to do more. Just more. He's just able to do more. 
I think his point is there is more grace in him than need in you. There's more grace in him than need in you. There's more grace in him than need in me. There's more grace in him than need in us. Do you believe that? And no prayer or no cry of our hearts, so desperate, so urgent, so important, so large, so expansive, so critical, that he's not able to do far more abundantly beyond it in his wonderful grace. And I don't want to just say those words and not back it up. We see this happening in, in, in the scriptures if you were to flip into the Old Testament, you don't have to. There's a story of a guy named Joseph. And Joseph's brothers, in a fit of jealousy, threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. And they thought they were done with him. They thought they were done with him. They could, never could imagine God's design, right? They never could have imagined God's design. That eventually, Joseph, as he grew up, would rise to the second most powerful person in Egypt. And years later, when there is this great famine and desperation sets in, Joseph's brothers and family, they flee to Egypt to beg for bread. And when they get there, Joseph is waiting for them. But he's not waiting for them to judge them, to destroy them, to put them in jail, to do the thing back to them, what they did to him or anything like that. But Joseph was waiting to speak words of love to provide for them, to be their rescuer, and to tell them what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God did far more abundantly than all Joseph or Joseph's family, even in Joseph's life, Joseph's family, or any of the people then of God that could have been asked or even imagined. Flip to the New Testament. You've heard this story in the Gospels when the crowds were assembled as they followed Jesus. They're on the hillside that hot, sunny day, and Jesus has been teaching, and they're hungry. And, and the disciples want Jesus to, to send them away, but Jesus has compassion on them, and he says, no, you feed them. And they're like, man, the day has been long. It's, you know, gonna go, the sun's going to go down, and all we have anyways is a couple of loaves and fish. Then Jesus did far more abundantly than they could ever ask think or imagine as he multiplied the, the loaves and fish to the point that there was leftover. There was more grace in him than need in the crowd. One final example. When the early believers were gathered and they were praying in urgency that God would, as, and they were starting, starting to experience persecution and and they were praying that God, they were crying out to God, not, not that God would deliver them from that, but rather that God would strengthen them, they, that, that he would make them bold to preach Jesus Christ in the middle of the persecution, in the middle of, uh, of the, of the uh, challenge and, and the heartache and the struggle, right? That he would, he would strengthen them, that they would be able to bless others with the proclamation of the gospel. They never could have imagined how God would answer their prayer, but the man presiding over the, the very persecution that they were experiencing erupting around them and in the church in Jerusalem, a man called Saul of Tarsus would be confronted by the exalted Christ. He'd be transformed from a murderous religious per persecutor into the mighty apostle Paul, and he would become God's instrument of bringing the gospel throughout the world. You see, God can do far more abundantly than we ever ask, think, or even imagine. 
Certainly Paul could pin those words because he knew, he knew, like this was beyond me. Certainly Paul never, never, in his, in his wildest dreams, God would use him in the way that he's using him. See, there's more grace in him than need in you. He's able. And so, so my encouragement is look there when you're in those depths. When you've drifted, when you feel empty, look there. Do not judge your future by today's measure. Rather, cling to the one who is able. Our God is able, and he is a solid rock upon which we stand. And no matter the storm that rages around you, no matter what comes and presses in around you, that you know that God is with you. 21, again, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that our cry? Isn't that our proclamation? I mean, it's as though Paul were seeing a relay race, which we know he did because he used that analogy quite a bit. One generation passing the baton to the other. We talk about that here as well. Each new generation taking up the same song as they discover for themselves the truth of the word of God. And he sees the anthem sung at first by the handful of those frightened and persecuted disciples in the upper room behind closed doors. But then he sees it breaking out all over, right, advancing around the world until a people, a people, family, all together are ransomed by, by what? By what we sang about, by Christ's blood from every tribe and language and nation under heaven that, that we would all begin to take up the song for ourselves and together to him who is able be glory, they sing. The infinite, unceasing fountain of joy and amazement for every Christian heart down through eternity would have these words when we've been there 10,000 years. Right, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Paul wants us even now to begin to see that. Right now and taste that. And that you and I would join him. And that our response, the only fitting response in giving our glory to God. That we would say with Paul to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, that is my hope for us as your church led by you, saved by you, provided by you, that we collectively, with Paul and with the saints and with believers throughout the generations, those that are here now, in this place and around the world, and for the generations to come until your Son and our Savior comes back, that we would, we would have the same words upon our hearts and minds and our lips. In our humbleness and surrender that we would recognize that you're able to do more. You're just able to do more. There is more grace within you than need in us. And God, my heart is for all of us to experience that, for the believer to be refreshed and comforted and strengthened in that, 
no matter what they're facing. For the unbeliever who may be hearing your words spoken right now, that they would recognize there is no place they could go. There is no, no place they could run to, drive to, hide. There is no pit too deep. But Jesus' love doesn't reach them. And that right now in this place, there be no barriers. There be no walls, no separator, but his love would penetrate into the heart. His salvation, the only salvation, would come. And they would confess and repent and believe on Jesus, your son, again, our Savior, their Savior and Lord for salvation. May today be the day that the family grows here on earth and in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.